Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Trial of Lizzie Borden The Trial of Lizzie Borden, A True Story Yeah, I know, everyone says that. But trust me, this is not just another podcast about Lizzie Borden. It's not Lizzie in the drawing room with a hatchet offering. We won't try to convince you Lizzie was pregnant or sleeping with Bridget or even did the deed naked. No, no. My guest today, lawyer and author Cara Robertson, instead covers in detail the legal proceedings, of which there were many, in the infamous murder trial and acquittal of Lizzie Borden. There is also a little treat in store. You will get to hear Ms. Robertson's portrayal of Emma Borden in a mock trial presided over by Supreme Court Justices William Rehnquist and Sarah Day O'Connor. How's that? Without further ado, please welcome to Murder Most Foul, Cara Robertson. It's great to be with you, Jim. So let us again point out that you are an attorney. Uh, You went to law school and all that good stuff. And I believe, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that working on this case was either a thesis or it was connected to your education, correct? That's right. It started out as my uh, senior thesis in college. Um, And then I just found the case so fascinating that I, uh, I kept thinking I was done and then I would pick it up at different points in my education and then I returned to it a few times and finally decided that I really just wanted to do a study of the trial. Before we get into all the judicial activities surrounding the case, let's uh, turn to Lizzie herself. In her own words, what did she say she was doing that fateful morning of August 2nd, 1892? Well, she gives an account of her movements on uh, the day that the you know murders actually happen. And she's upstairs in her bedroom, you know, attended by uh, some uh, neighbors who are trying to, um, you know, calm her down, console her. Uh, And she's also being protected uh, by the family doctor um, who is limiting who can come in and who can't come in. Um, And the police, you know, I think are beginning almost immediately to be suspicious because of the uh, way she's behaving. You know, she's not behaving in a way that that uh, meets their expectations. Um, it's also true that the, you know, the account she gives of her movements, which, you know, will be very familiar to people who know this case, uh, is that she was uh, downstairs when her uh, stepmother was killed, you know, so in other words, in the house when the murder took place, and then outside in the barn, uh, looking for a sinker or maybe a piece of metal or who knows what, stopping to eat pears uh, when her father was killed. Um, and, you know, none of this sounds very good uh, after the fact when they're when the police discover these two horribly murdered people in the house. 
Um, so that obviously raises suspicion. And then the fact that she's being sort of protected, um, uh, you know, is of concern as well. Now, apart from being questions by um, now, apart from being questioned by the authorities um, on the day of the murders, the moments after the discovery, um, the first actual official uh, uh, judicial activity um, connected to the case is the inquest, uh, where they're getting a little bit more into uh, um, the stuff. They're going to invite witnesses and they're going to talk. And she, if I'm not mistaken, she comes in and her she does have an attorney at that point. Um, but he is not allowed, and the discussion by the authorities are, well, she's not, you know, a suspect. So she does sit for an interview. Is that correct? That's right. That's that's actually where we get the most extended um, account, really, from her own lips. That it's it's the only time she testifies under oath, not to spoil it, <laughs> not to be a spo spoiler alert here. Uh, so it's, you know, it's it's uh, an account that's really been poured over for that reason. Um, what's interesting about about this issue is that is that it is absolutely correct that the state is required or the Commonwealth, I'm sorry, that the Commonwealth is required uh, to hold an inquest when there's a suspicious death. And so the uh, the their position uh, is that you know this is just a very straightforward investigation into a suspicious death, um, but it's pretty clear, um, as we've already discussed, that they they already suspect uh, Lizzie Borden. In fact, the uh, marshal, the, who's the who's the effectively the chief of police in Fall River, um, is carrying a warrant for her arrest in his uh, jacket pocket. So clearly, they you know sh she was under very specific suspicion at that point. Uh, and so it's a little disingenuous to claim that that it was just, you know, they're just investigating a death. Uh, and so her attorney was, you know, uh, understandably upset about not being able to be in there and advise her. Um, the counter argument to that is that is that the attorney was there beforehand and uh, and doubtless they had discussed what, whether she should cooperate or not. Um, and so it's not like she didn't have any legal advice. Um, and then, you know, finally, we should say that it wasn't the norm for someone to be allowed uh, to have a lawyer in at an inquest at that point. So that's the, that's the Commonwealth's position is that they just treated her like everybody else. Um, but as you can imagine, those were, those were kind of bad, bad facts as we in the law call it. Um, when uh, the judges at the trial were, were looking at whether or not they would admit that testimony. Could she have uh, refused to, to uh, cooperate? Yes. She could have refused to cooperate because um, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in its constitution had something that's very much like what we think of as a, as a uh, Miranda-like protection or, or rather a Fifth Amendment-like protection. 
Now, and again, this is uh, this is common knowledge to anyone who has watched the movies or studied the cases that um, her testimony. I'm not going to say it's rambling um, because, again, I've 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 seen you know reenactments of it. So all you have to do is read, and much of it, like I said, there's great ex- excerpts in your book um, that it she would get into a a verbal sparring match with uh, the questioner, where on their simple terms, I mean. You you know, we'd say we're, 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 he was trying to get at what the relationship was in the house and asked her about her relationship with her stepmother. And he, st- he used the word cordial. And she went, well, I don't know what cordial, 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 this cordial, that. Uh, did you like her? Did you? It, 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 the question seemed to go on a couple of them forever. And she never answered them. So that was in one direction. And also there was later the. Um, uh point that she was given and we don't know whether she took it she was given morphine uh after the murder uh by her doctor to calm her her down and people were claiming oh well she was so drugged up whatever she said in that inquest was useless um but what else did they elicit from her besides the the verbal gymnastics what uh what kind of contradictions within because they couldn't test her later on contradictions it would have to be people talk about the contradictions within that one testimony yeah it's, it's such an interesting uh problem um because you know lawyers lawyers as you say at least on tv like to like to be able to say like well you said this then and you say this now like were you lying then or are you lying now you know it's it's always a very dramatic moment <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in this case, uh, the um, I, I'd say that what the what the uh, prosecutor gets out of it um, is the sense of of the hostility in the household. Um, you know, he because that is when uh, she's she tells him this very long story about a property dispute, uh, and that that seems it, it's just it's just jarring uh what they have is contradictory accounts of where she was at the time of her stepmother's death and that's really important um right and, and when then, and when when the fa- father came in in one account again whether it might have been with authorities or with friends who then then they testify to what was told to them that she's either at the top of the stairs uh, laughing with Bridget, or she's downstairs, or you know, so that's kind of simple, uh, I would think, for anyone, you know, even after this tragedy. But, but for whatever reason, she might have either forgotten or thought that she needed no, I, I, it's better if I was upstairs. No, no, it's better if I was downstairs. Is this, um, one of the things that I know comes out and it's in the book, comes out at one of the either in a, a testimony or just to friends? Where does she snap at someone and say, she's not my mother? She's my stepmother, you, that hateful, fat, now that might be two different <laughs> times, a hateful, fat old thing. What, was that ever said to an authority or just to like Mrs. Adelaide or somebody? Right. So she says something like that to Mrs. Gifford, the dressmaker, like, don't call her my mother. You know, she's she's a mean, good for nothing thing. And she tells other people that, that you know, she doesn't have much to do with her. Um, and, and whether she's actually more refined when she speaks 
<laughs> about her to her friends or whether they've just sort of cleaned it up a bit. We can't say. But uh, the thing that she does do that's quite jarring, and one of the things that arouses the suspicion of one of the police officers is that she corrects him on the day of the murders that that this isn't my mother, this is my stepmother. Um, and it seems to him pretty cold given you know that the woman is um has been so violently murdered uh you know the defense obviously will will make um will make nothing out of it we'll just say look it's a statement of fact you know so i don't know why why you can build that into some um you know admission of of great enmity So the next uh, step up the judicial system for Lizzie Borden is the preliminary hearing. Well, the preliminary hearing was, you know, was already creating a bit of a sensation. So it wasn't as, there wasn't as um, much, uh, I don't know, circus-like behavior at the preliminary hearing as there was at the trial itself, but it was still um, a packed event. And, um, uh, Andrew Jennings, who had been um, the Borden family attorney and who was the lawyer who was not allowed to represent Lizzie Borden's in interests at the inquest, um, realized he needed some help. Uh, and so he retained uh, a, a very well-known Boston attorney named Melvin Adams, who was um, known to be you know, an excellent trial lawyer. Uh, he also was a bit of a dandy. He had this sort of perfect curl. <laughs> this hair uh, and the journalists who were already beginning to um, treat the lawyers and the witnesses and uh, the court personnel in general as characters uh, in the exciting drama of the trial um, or the legal proceedings since we're not quite at the trial yet, but um, you know, they wrote about him anyway, he was very uh, good in dealing with all the expert witnesses and that's, and a lot of the preliminary hearing was focused on that was, you know, establishing times of death because really the, the best case for the prosecution was that no one else could have done it was that, was that Lizzie Borden had exclusive opportunity because whoever um, killed the Bordens, you know, assuming it's this, it's, it's a single murderer and they, no one really seemed to um, dispute that um, had to have been in the house um, to kill Mrs. Borden at 9.30 and then remain in the house out of sight of Lizzie Borden and Bridget. And this is if we're assuming someone came in from the outside uh, and then wait to kill Andrew Borden and then once again evade um, the other two women and get out without hurting them. Now, and so I, I, I need to point out for people who aren't familiar, and it's in the book, it's in any book you and you can look it up online. I have visited the house. Anyone in the Northeast should go see the house. Or if you've got a frequent flyer miles, come west, come, come east or whatever, come north, come south. That the layout of this house, I, we can't even go through it in an audio podcast. 
it is so bizarre with it it's almost a railroad flat maybe it was called a railroad flat doors you had to go through everyone's door to get to the ends and there were staircases at each end whatever so it adds to this you might say well in my house someone could be in the attic and someone could be in the basement and someone could kill someone trust me uh from what i've seen again that that no one knew what you know lizzie if she didn't do it, had no idea that the, that the 200 pound body had hit the floor and all the rest. So I'm sorry, I interrupt. I do that all the time. <laughs> well, it's, you know, there is something about the case and, and particularly being in the house like that, um, that, uh, you know, turns everybody into a bit of an amateur detective, you know, because it is ultimately it's, a, it, you know, it's sort of like a locked room mystery from a classic uh, detective novel. Because uh, there are really a limited number of suspects, and and it's very uh, dependent on who was where, when, and who could have heard what. Um, the funny thing, actually, speaking to someone who's been to the house many times, um, is often on tours or people who are staying in the house uh, because it is, or at least it was, a bed and breakfast, and still is. <laughs> often, often do things like uh, you know send part of their party downstairs, and then someone falls upstairs to see if it can be heard. Uh, you know, and also, or try to hide in the closet and see if you could, you know, escape notice that way. Uh, uh, and then, uh, and then, um, one of the key questions in the trial is whether or not, assuming Lizzie Borden was upstairs, as she says at one point, um, whether she would have necessarily seen um, her stepmother's body uh, as she descended the stairs, which are directly opposite the guest room uh, where. Abby Borden was killed. Um, and so there's a lot of discussion about you where, whether you would necessarily look at that or whether you wouldn't look at that on your way down and what was she laughing at? You referred to the laugh earlier that Bridget um, that Bridget testifies to. You know, so there are lots of you know these little details that you know if read a certain way can um, you know make it seem very sinister. Uh, I, I think the thing I would say about the house is that it, you know, it was a converted family tenement. So, so the, the, um, in other words, it was for two families and it was converted into a single family home. So the layout's identical, but as you point out, there are no hallways. So you have to walk through various bedrooms, but we know that, um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Borden had blocked off and locked their bedroom from Lizzie's side and Lizzie had done the same. Again, you know, whether this was just for privacy or whether this was um, a sign of some kind of uh, real tension in the family, it, it, it happened after Lizzie had returned home from um, an unusual uh, trip abroad. And it was a trip that, that according to someone who, um, again, was not allowed to testify at trial, um, she, she didn't want to end. In fact, she didn't want to go back to that house. Uh, anyway, so the, the point of that part of the story is that, is that the killer could not have escaped down the back steps, right? So it makes it even less likely that somebody else was hiding in the house um, after killing Mrs. Borden and then coming down to kill uh, Mr. Borden. So again, in the preliminary hearing uh, uh, and uh, trial, uh, I believe she probably testified the trial too. Bridget is 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 key to um, because she's got no axe to grind. She, 
Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It's it's uh, it's impossible uh, not, not to. to. So she was able to just straightforward uh, talk about uh, things, and she answered truthfully. Um, so, uh, but let's another witness, uh, as I mentioned, is Eli Benz, who was a a druggist. Uh, Eli Benz was a clerk um, at a druggist, and he testified that on August 3rd, so in other words, on the day before the murders, that a woman came in and tried to buy prussic acid. Um, prussic acid is um, it's, it's a form of uh, hydrocyanic acid, you know, so we think of it as cyanide. Um, and it's very deadly, but it was sold upon a doctor's prescriptions. And the woman didn't have one, but she said, oh, no, I purchased it here many times uh, and I needed to kill um, moths in a, in a, a sealskin cape. Um, the druggist said, you know, no, you can't have it that way. And, and the woman left. So in other words, she didn't get the poison. Um, he testified that the, the woman in question was Lizzie Borden. Uh, and there were three other people, or rather three people total, two others in the drugstore who also identified her. Now, later, we can say that there are problems with the identification, but uh, he, what he did say was, oh, wait, that's Andrew at the time. He said, that's Andrew Borden's daughter. Um, so, and Andrew Borden was a well enough known figure and Lizzie Borden was probably well enough known in that area that um, he was able to make that identification. So I think it's not hard to see why that's explosive uh, because what that does is uh, one, it shows intent. Uh, you know, it shows that Lizzie Borden probably had murder on her mind, <laughs> you know, cause it, it's not really uh, believable uh, that she wanted to kill moths on a sealskin cape in August. You know, why would someone like Lizzie Borden, this is someone who, you know, on paper and in, in appearance, checks all the boxes of um, middle class womanhood or upper middle class womanhood. She's active in her churches. Um, she dresses well, particularly when she inherits some money. Um, but she doesn't. She she doesn't look like a raving maniac, and that's kind of what you would expect given the given the brutality of the murders. You know, if if she tried to buy poison on August third was and was unable to, and the murders were a matter of some urgency, like there was a reason she had they had to be killed, then it makes some sense for the from the prosecution's perspective, you know, who who are themselves men of that era, that she might have turned to a readily available household implement to commit the murders. Now you out talk of desperation. about. So at the end of this hearing, though, which is fun, because it's not uh, unreasonable, a reasonable doubt, the uh, judge, it's it's like a civil case of more likely than not. So he decides she's probably guilty. And so right. that yeah. moves it on to the next step, which is every, what we all know about a grand jury. Right. And just to just to go back to the judge, I mean, what he says is, um, you know, su suppose a man were in front of me with telling the same story, you know, that who's who's told many stories that contradict each other is the only person known to be in the house is the only person with motive, etc. Um, and so uh, looking at it that way, 
you know, he, he thinks that there's really no choice. I mean, I don't think it gives him any pleasure. The uh, reporters covering the case talk about, talk about his voice trembling, you know, and eyes filled with tears, as he said it. I mean, nobody wanted to reach this conclusion because, you know, it is, it is a horrible thought to think that um, anyone would kill uh, you know, an elderly father and stepmother in that way, um, and particularly a daughter. I mean, there's something particularly upsetting about it, I think, for all of us. At what point is she arrested? Uh, I mean, we're, get, we're moving forward now. Is it, is it until after the grand jury or is she already? No, she's did? arrested after the inquest. Like I said, he had the yeah. he had the warrant. Was she then jailed at that point too? I mean, that's she- right. Then she's, then she's uh, in jail for the rest of the uh, time until she uh, comes to trial. Um, there were a number of women's organizations that tried to get her um, what we would think of as bailed, uh, but they're just that wasn't permitted for capital cases. So on December second, eighteen ninety two, the uh, grand jury uh, 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 votes out what is called in the legal field a true bill, and she's charged with murder. Now, it was the death penalty? available in Massachusetts? Uh, yes, the death penalty was available and that, you know, that's, it's the only, um, it's the only possible sentence for, um, for the murders for which she's charged. But the prosecution was very uh, concerned about those kinds of questions because, uh, you know, they needed, they needed a theory of the case that would be persuasive. Um, I mean, they were convinced, uh, I mean, genuinely convinced, uh, albeit reluctantly, um, that uh, she was guilty. I mean, they weren't just prosecuting her for the heck of it, because we do have their correspondence. And we also know that that um, what they were trying to push the defense to do was uh, permit some kind of psychological examination of Lizzie Borden, because, you know, for them, the only explanation really was that she... Uh, she'd had some sort of, uh, you know, they wouldn't have called it a psychotic break, but I mean, the equivalent of that, like some, some um, insanity. And they actually researched um, whether or not there was insanity in the family. Um, and they concluded that, uh, you know, there were some pretty odd apples in the family tree, but there was, there was no actual insanity. Um, and so they couldn't, you know, really show that on their own. And the defense very sensibly thought, no, we're not going to agree to this because our position is that she's not guilty, not that she um, is crazy and therefore shouldn't be punished. Uh, and so they they just ruled that out of hand. Um, but the questions that you raise are important because uh, the prosecution really, you know, even though they believe she's guilty, even though they think that the evidence is very clear um, that she had exclusive um, opportunity, um, they they have trouble coming up with an explanation for why she killed her father. I mean, they do have a they do have a clear sense based on this sort of suffocating tension in the house, and these resentments and the risk that uh, maybe Andrew Borden's going to make a will because he did talk about it, though there's no proof that he did um, or was planning to. Um, or maybe you know they just were looking at you know she was just looking ahead and she couldn't stand it anymore. Who knows? Whatever whatever reason that they found that that wasn't. Um, that didn't seem very mysterious to them, even if the choice of weapon was uh, eccentric, shall we say. Um, but uh, 
you know, they're, they effectively just stumble over the body of Andrew Borden in coming up with an explanation. You know, so their explanation is that uh, Andrew Borden came home earlier than she expected. And so she wasn't able to go out and establish an alibi. And then they come up with this theory that's sort of out of uh, Jekyll and Hyde, that she undergoes this transformation um, into the murderess. Um, it's very theatrical, actually. Well, let's uh, point out, let's point out as we're about to delve into the trial, is that this was a an incredible theatrical operation. I mean, every twin will talk about, you know, I don't want to spill the beans and something that gets spilled out onto the table, but it was theatrics from the rest of the stuff was probably quite tame, the inquiry and the, the preliminary hearing, grand jury behind closed doors. But now we're, we're into this trial and, and the personalities are just, uh, incredible. And I need to point out at the beginning, that some people who don't realize this or forgot that it was an all-male jury. Women had no right to serve on a jury in Massachusetts until 1950. And uh, and it wasn't until 1951 that the, there was a fir- the first female juror. Wow. Uh, I, there were a couple of African-American men in the pool um, when they were selecting the jury, uh, which I thought was interesting. I mean, I, I, I guess I hadn't really expected that myself. Well, one of the things that, um, you know, this is happenstance, but I mean, it really worked well for Lizzie Borden, uh, is that uh, there had, there was another terrible axe murder um, in Fall River uh, right before the jury was seated. Um, a woman named Bertha Manchester was killed, uh, it, it appeared, by... Um, an insane Portuguese immigrant, you know, who worked on the, who worked on the farm and had a, a money dispute with her father. Um, and so that was in effect, the exact kind of um, ax or hatchet murder you would expect if you're going to have one. Um, and there, there, so that, that story was in the news just as the, um, uh, as the jury was being seated. And so they wouldn't have known for sure that they'd arrested somebody and that it turned out that that person, you know, absolutely could not have killed the Bordens because he wasn't in the country at the time. I mean, the murders were very dissimilar in other ways, but, um, you know, that was sort of a handy reminder of the, of the kind of classic murder as you would assume it would unfold um, versus, you know, in other words, some other, type of person did it someone we view as an outsider someone who might have violent tendencies because you know we can't trust these immigrants um they're not really like us uh versus the um you know versus the daughter uh with a long history of fall river who's part of the uh, by descent at least and part of the yankee elite So let's talk again when we when we get to the trial. Um, there is uh, a lot of what we've talked about already, and that people know about that was presented uh, to the jury. Uh, you know, uh, um, her contradiction where she was, um, what you know, availability, uh, proximity, and uh, other items by that came from witnesses. Let's talk though. One of the fun things is the actual presented. Um, uh, 
what's I'm looking for exhibits, if you will. So uh, we'll we can go through these one by one. Let's talk first about uh, the hoodoo hatchet. So of course we're the the police that day and subsequently are looking because they've decided it's a hatchet, and uh, which is a good good guess. So they hunt the basement. They have a barn. Uh, the Bordens with a loft and all that. And there's one particular, and it's not a full hatchet. So tell us about the hoodoo hatchet as it's presented. Well, one of the police officers testifies that that he finds um, a headless hatchet. It's about, uh, I'm just, what I remember is I held it in my hand, <laughs> the blade in my hand. Um, now, is then, that, I'm know, sorry, the, is that at the house now or is that at the Fall River Historical Society? Fall River Historical Society. Yes, has, okay, has, I'll be has promoting that near the end. But Yes. Yeah, I mean, they're they're wonderful. Right. And the police officer says that says that not only, uh, you know, did he notice that um, it seems like a fresh break, uh, but also that it was in a box of uh, otherwise disused or abandoned tools. Uh, but instead of the dust that covered a lot of the other things in the uh, basement, it had this kind of fine ash on it. You know, the implication is that somebody hid it there, basically put it there um, and kind of tried to camouflage it with ash as opposed to, um, you know, as, as opposed to the dust that it would have, it, it would have um, had on the surface if it had just been really lying around for months or years. Um, and the and the break was significant in that uh, that you know wood would have been more difficult to clean, and so if it if the wood part had been uh, uh, taken off and burned, then um, it would have been another way you know to hide the the murder weapon. Now let me ask um, the attorney here. Okay, some of this stuff I go. How did this you know so. They are, I think they're they're intimating, but nobody is holding it up because we don't have DNA and even blood analysis. This is the weapon. This was the weapon. So they just say, here is a weapon which is consistent, but they use it to put it into this and to do that. Is that not prejudicial over probative using legal terms? <laughs> Was that, did anyone, did anyone, um, let's put it this way, did anyone on the defense, did they complain or object to its cavalier passing around and being used as, as what it, more than what it was? Yes. Um, it's, uh, I mean, what they're, what they're able to do is point out that, that, um, different weapons had been identified as the likely murder weapon earlier. You know, so this was a, um, the original weapon that they thought had uh, killed the Bordens then got ruled out. And there was another thing that had hair, had hair or blood on it, and it turned out to be not human. Um, in fact, one of them, one of the hair, I think, was from a cow, and there was a, um, a cow in the distance that, you know, started mooing at exactly that, that time, uh, which one of the reporters makes a lot of uh, hay out of. Sorry. Uh, for the pun. Um, yeah, so that so that they, they don't have a consistent, um, they can't really prove it, basically, is the is the conclusion. But they what they're trying to do is, um, you know, they're trying to have it basically every way, you know, and they and and that's that this is probably the weapon. And this shows that she had access to a weapon. But if we can't find the weapon, that's even weirder, because do we really think somebody 
who just came out from um, who uh, came in from outside would have taken the weapon with them. Now, um, because as I said we we fit the uh, uh, the prosecution is trying to you know use the the hatchet as it could be the murder weapon. We know that they were, uh, but part of that process of of was well, how do you decide it was the, a weapon, even an axe? Um, tell us about another um, uh, piece of evidence that came out of a sack, a burlap bag. <laughs> tell us about that and why. I think- I think you might be referring to the skulls. I think I might be. <laughs> of Andrew and Abby Borden. Again, I, I, you know, we don't mean to laugh about um, something so horrible, but it is just, it's just, uh, it's gruesome. What happened, um, you know, for the, for the skulls to be uh, uh, arrived in the courtroom is that um, uh, after the autopsy um, or in, the, or as part of it, um, the heads were removed and then uh, the local medical examiner rendered the flesh off the, um, off the skulls. Uh, and so that, so that he could then get a better view of, of the skull damage, um, which is quite extensive. Um, and then they made casts of it too, you know, with, with um, markings to uh, indicate where the various wounds were. Uh, but the um, prosecutor, the younger prosecutor, um, uh, William Moody, uh, who did the opening statement, had this, had them, you know, actually in a bag in the in the courtroom. And um, he talked about the mortal remains, you know, that he was going to present. And, you know, gestured in this direction and this and this caused um, Lizzie Borden to faint. Um, which turned out to be very helpful for her. She got very positive reviews because this is someone who who um, was viewed as having this kind of suspicious self-possession, um, which, you know, like everything else, was read in two different ways. You know, either it was this sort of um, a sign of, you know, Yankee grit and true womanliness or ladyhood, as, as they would have said, um, or it was a sign that there was just something sort of off and that she had this kind of masculine nerve, you know, which would, would be more consistent with, with doing those kinds of murders. So, you know, here she finds out for the first time that her father, you know, and stepmother's heads have been removed and that they're going to be in the courtroom uh, and she just faints. Um, so it, it's pretty, it's a pretty gruesome scene. And, and uh, the, the skulls, the skulls upset the jury as well. And if I may interject a little humor uh, from the reporters at the time, at uh, one point, they, the skulls were put on a stack of law books and reporter Elizabeth Jordan wrote of the moment, quote, the old man's jaw sagged back and forth in a grisly suggestion of speech. Spectators caught their breath and then exhaled in a gasp that swept the courtroom like a great sigh. Was he trying to testify? Julian Ralph, another journalist, scribbled a question to Jordan. Quote, if the old man awakened by the first blow saw his murderer, would he tell who it was? If he saw it was his daughter, would he say so? Jordan replied, no, not if he was a good man. <laughs> so we have the, the uh, skulls. Other things that, again, were 
um, evidence that was uh, questioning uh, Lizzie Borden, it, she must have, is again, the concept of blood spatter. And people, you know, the prosecutor tries to say she'd be covered because arteries were severed and, and whatnot. So there's a big question, and this is through testimony. How many dresses was Lizzie Borden wearing that day? <laughs> right. So we know that she was wearing um, a blue a blue dress, you know, blue and white um, on the morning of the murders. And we know that she presented herself later in a, in a pink wrapper. Um, and the, um, the prosecution, the police and the prosecution were given a blue dress that she said that she had worn that day. Uh, the prosecutor, Hosea Knowlton really took this, um, was was affronted because he really thought that this was not the dress. Uh, and um, we also know that Lizzie Borden burned a dress, you know, that was primarily blue uh, the weekend after the murders. Um, and this is something that didn't come out until the grand jury. Um, the Her close friend, Alice Russell, who is the first person that Lizzie thought to summon after the doctor, uh, a former neighbor, um, stayed with her and actually saw the dress burning and, and said that was a, you know, that was a mistake. Um, you, this is a terrible choice and then chose not to say anything about it because she thought it looked so bad. And then uh, her conscience got the better of her. And so um, after she testified at the grand jury, she asked, she consulted a lawyer and asked to go back and um, uh, cure her, her testimony by adding that. Um, and that also, you know, that obviously looked bad as well, because, you know, if that was indeed the dress that Lizzie Borden had worn on the day of the murders, then, you know, perhaps that was a dress that had been, um, had some bloodstains on it. Um, her, her official explanation was that it was a paint stained dress. Uh, and, and and she was able to have support for that, that the dress had been stained with paint. The dressmaker and a painter had testified that that was correct. Um, but why she chose to burn it at that particular time was a little bit um, well, and, and hard to explain. Emma was there, too. And I'm not sure which one said this or testified they said this was that, you know, th this is not a good thing to do. Um, you know, the police are looking for the dress, a dress or your dress. And this is the worst thing that you could do. That's uh, Alice, you know, Alice was there too. So this, we have the dueling testimonies. And I think Emma on the stand under oath says she really didn't say, don't burn it. She said something to the effect, well, yeah, go ahead. I mean, if it's, if it's stained, yeah, go ahead. So there right. was a Emma, Emma I'm sorry. No. Emma says that, um, under oath that she's the one who said, why don't you just burn that old thing? Um, so that in other words, she takes the, um, the onus onto her um, so that it wasn't Lizzie's idea, you know, that they're just sort of sitting, <laughs> sitting around with nothing to do the weekend after of the, the terrible murders. And well, and why don't and so, you just burn that old dress? And so it, it's, and it, it's either. So again, you've got conflict is great in any trial. You have two eyewitnesses to an event. Alice and 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 Emma, one a sister, a little closer, you know, maybe. Okay, and, but I don't know. We never know whether Emma 
believe, you know, to her dying day, whether she, what she had in her heart about what happened, be that as it may, right afterwards, she maybe is trying to protect her. Uh, she'd rather not be executed. She can't do anything about bringing, you know, her parents back. Um, but you have two witnesses. You got Alice said, she's, you know, everyone said, don't do this, including Alice. And then you got Emma saying, no, no, I said, go ahead and do it. So I pushed her to do it. Right. And the, you know, the one of the defense's biggest points is that is that there were these, you know, gruesome murders. And there's no one who's on the scene that day who says that Lizzie Borden had any blood on her. You know, so the, you know, there's a lot of debate back and forth among the medical experts about where exactly the, you know, the blood spatter would have gone, or rather, you know, depending on where the person would have stood at various points, how much blood would be on that person. So um, the fact that Lizzie, you know, presented herself uh, twice, you know, between the, once between the murders, you know, she saw her father and she saw Bridget Sullivan. Um, And then uh, again, fairly shortly after Andrew Borden died, because he had not been dead long when uh, she summoned help. I've suggested that she just would not have had time to clean up. You know, and it is the thing that it is it is the thing that I think um, still gives people like a little bit of pause because even if she had uh, burned a blood stained dress, wouldn't she have had to you know clean herself up more? And um, you know, there's a I think there's a possible explanation for that in the cellar, <laughs> which is a um, a pail of bloody towels um, that the police find and that. Uh, Lizzie's daughter, a doctor rather, um, says, you know, are perfectly okay because they're menstrual cloths. Yeah, I I think that what's what's most interesting, I mean, from looking at this case, you know, for what it tells us about the culture is that, you know, both sides just agreed not to talk about it. Uh, And that, you know, insofar as it comes up, it comes up as a a sort of a, you know, there's sort of an allusion to it, but it's not... um, it is not itself considered evidence, which of course it, it could be. I mean, it, it, you know, it offers an explanation for why uh, no one saw any blood on her. Um, let's talk about the matron uh, and, and, and again, showing uh, uh, hearsay, if you will, but the matron supposedly witnessed it. It's not hearsay. She witnessed it or claimed she did. So she's able to testify what she heard, not what someone else told her about what they heard. Yeah, that's my little uh, uh, hearsay one-on-one thing. So she said, what did she witness in when Lizzie was in jail? So she testified that she witnessed an argument between the sisters uh, that uh, um, Lizzie said to Emma, you know, you've given me away. Uh, and, um, and then turned to the wall and didn't, you know, want to talk to her for the rest of the visit, um, which was uncharacteristic. Um, and uh, Matron's statement about the argument gets published in the newspapers. and uh, Before she testifies, I believe. Right, and Lizzie's defense lawyer um, uh, demands that she uh, publish, that she sign a retraction, basically. And the matron says, um, I'm not going to sign anything until I, you know, go speak to Marshall Hilliard. And Marshall Hilliard says, like, basically do your... Do your talking under oath. 
So the case we're now coming to to the to the to the end where I want to talk about the prosecution's two major setbacks. Yeah, the prosecution has has two huge evidentiary setbacks. The first is that uh, Lizzie Borden's um, inquest testimony is excluded, and uh, the judges basically say, "Look, um, the, you know the common law. The common law is concerned with with." Um, substance, not just not just technical legal form. So it's all very well to say that um, this was an inquest that the state that the Commonwealth was required uh, to hold. And in other circumstances, you haven't let lawyers in. Um, and so this was no different. But the fact is, uh, the marshal um, had an arrest warrant in his um, in his coat pocket. And so you're really intending to arrest Lizzie Borden all along. Um, and so the reason that this is a terrible setback is that is that um, they have Lizzie Borden's own words about where she claimed to have been at the time of the murders. And it and she gives, you know, shifting and conflicting accounts of her movements. Um, and it also has in her own words um, an account of the dispute uh, between um, her um, her stepmother and herself and her sister uh, about the property. And this is important because uh, the defense is very good about just trying to say, look, this is just the sort of thing that women, uh, you know, all together in a house get involved with. What can you expect? You know, it's perfectly normal. Um, and, but it doesn't actually mean anything. You know, women are just like that, basically, is the, is the defense argument, um, which would have been harder to do had um, uh, the testimony come in. Um, and then perhaps even more importantly, um, the uh, judges decide um, ultimately to exclude uh, the testimony of Eli Bentz about the um, attempt to purchase prussic acid. And that happens in two stages. The first is the first is you know can the um, you know basically that they're what the prosecution is saying. Look, we're only interested in this to show intent. This isn't a bad prior acts kind of test. You know, um, evidence which wouldn't be permitted, right? Because you don't want something that's that's just prejudicial. Um, and it is, it would be very prejudicial, but would it be probative too? And the probative side is that it shows intent that she, you know, was, was planning to kill somebody um, and specifically planning to kill um, her father and her stepmother. Um, and the uh, defense does this brilliant job. I mean, and this is where, which is, I think, where George Robinson really shines uh, at um and, and making sure that no experts get qualified to be able to say that that um, you know prussic acid is a poison used to kill people, which is which seems sort of obvious, right? So it's it's um, he manages uh, to keep out the testimony of a furrier who will say that no, you don't use prussic acid to kill um, vermin on or moths on on fur coats. Like if he's never heard of such a thing, like that's crazy. Uh, and and also a scientist to say that you wouldn't use it for that reason, like you would that there are other things you would use. Um, and so then this this removes the um, explanation for why someone like Lizzie Borden would end up killing with a with a hatchet, you know, or an axe or something like that, as opposed to with poison, which is a, a woman's weapon. 
defense does in this circumstance is basically excuse the prosecution of, of kind of bootstrapping, saying that saying that look this is an this is an article that's that's you know sold um sold commercially it has a number of innocent uses and even if you say that it shows intent it doesn't really show intent as to who she wanted to kill and the only thing the only evidence you have of that is you know this distant family dispute which is just doesn't mean anything um plus some mean things she said to a dressmaker uh and some other people which were long before the crime um and the fact that she corrected the police officer who referred to um abby borden as her mother right after the crime and you know you're trying to build this up into a big story and in fact it just all falls apart um and the judges agreed you know whether or not they should have um <laughs> is a question you know is is a is a question that um people uh in the legal world at the time um took on afterwards i mean there was there was a lot of surprise about um that decision you know because that that was a decision that would usually what would the, what they would say would be that it, it goes to weight not a, admissibility you know in other words that you would you would admit it, but and then let the jury decide, you know, whether they really believe it and what it actually means. Um, the the prior question seemed like a legal matter, and that was something that they also didn't approve of. That they thought that that was something that that was an unusual decision. Um, but the prussic acid um, exclusion, I think, really tanked the case for the prosecution. Now, you just said that uh, uh, generally. Do you yourself, as a, and I'm not being facetious like we've been up to this point, as a lawyer, as a practicing, and you have practiced, correct, before, or you're just like a writer, uh, <laughs> dilettante, uh, educator, uh, podcast uh, person? No, no, I... I um... I worked in the the federal um, system as a law clerk for um, at different levels, and then uh, I, I worked at the UN and on war crimes. Oh, oh boy, we got another podcast coming. Okay, so um, so what is your personal opinion? Do you agree with the discussion that this uh, would have been a big, big uh, chance that they would have convicted if they if they could hear that? Well, I think w given that we know what happened and how the jury reacted i would say that it probably wouldn't have made any difference you know i think that they just weren't prepared to believe that this could have happened which is different than do they think it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt or not but i mean i would say that that and the prosecution certainly felt that that a lot of their their best evidence was taken away from them you know the evidence of the in in lizzie borden's own words of her uh whereabouts and then also um you know this—the fact that she tried to buy this deadly poison the the day before the murders. I mean, there's a bit of a wink and a, a a wink, you know, in the prosecution's presentation, in that we all know that, um, and they certainly would have believed this then, that uh, women are most likely to be poisoners, right? So that it's not it's not just that she tried to buy a weapon that she couldn't obtain; it was the specific weapon that she tried to buy. 
that's so significant. And and I mean, and there I have to say, I have some sympathy for the judges because uh, when we think about things as being weighed, like what's the probative value versus the prejudicial value. And, you know, they people live in a certain time and a, and a place. And in that time and place, I think it would be hard to see her as innocent if she tried to buy, to you know, to, to view her with a presumption of innocence if she had in fact tried to buy this deadly poison the day before her, um, her uh, stepmother and father were, you know, murdered. And for those who don't know, the verdict uh, did come in very quickly. Right. They, they're unanimous on the first ballot, which is pretty striking. And, and that's why I say that, you know, this really isn't a case about reasonable doubt. You know, this is a sort of unreasonable certainty that someone like Lizzie Borden couldn't have done it. Um, I mean, they're just not prepared to really consider it. And then we know that out of respect for the prosecutor, uh, they sit there for another, <laughs> they sit there for another, you know, 90 minutes to, um, to make sure they look reasonably deliberative. Well, uh, and and again, I, I, you know, go back a little bit to like the O.J. Simpson case, and that's been picked apart even more, I think, than Lizzie Borden. Um, you know, who's at fault and, and Furman and, and all that stuff. In this case, I think you could sit, as we've just said, well, what if, you know, did this go that the skull's good for the prosecution and the and the, uh, the uh, uh, preliminary here, the inquest and whatnot? But it looks like, and obviously, you know, I would have to agree with you that they, I don't know if they made their minds up, but nothing moved them. They started with, there's no way this could have happened. Lizzie Borden could not have done this. Convince me. I don't know if they really went in. I'm putting, you know, thoughts in their heads. I'm totally open. Show me what path to go down. So to pick on any one particular thing here that either the defense did better or the prosecution did worse um, it was probably a foregone conclusion. And am I fair with that assessment? Yeah, it did. I think at the time it didn't feel that way. I mean, I think there was real suspense. Um, but as the trial went on, I, I think that um, the sort of sympathy in favor of Lizzie Borden grew. This part of it is, you know, this was an unusually long trial for that era. It was, you know, over, over two weeks. Um, and, you know, they have Lizzie Borden in the courtroom every more, you know, every day looking very much like a lady would look. Um, we know that she dressed very well. That was commented upon by the um, by the journalists. Uh, and we also know that that she took great hair, care with her hair and her appearance. Um, and and there's just something uh, just so inconsistent with that, with between that, between this idea of the person, you know, the sort of inc- the, the embodiment of this of this uh, person, um, and the brutality of the murders that I think it it would have been um, it, w- it would have been difficult not to have some sympathy. Um, you know, it w- would be obviously the you know the the prosecution does what it can to present the horror of the of the murders, but you know it, it almost backfires because the the more horrible it seems the less likely it seems that somebody like Lizzie Borden could have done it. Um, and we know that she was very effective um, as a kind of mute tragedian, m- more so than she had been as a witness at, uh, at the inquest that, you know, she uses her fan, she hides her head behind her, va- her fan during particularly gruesome testimony. Um, and one of my favorite descriptions of this comes from um, 
a really prominent uh, journalist who covers the case named Julian Ralph, who talks about um, how she she um, she seems to be able to stand, you know, gruesome testimony from her own experts, you know, from the defense experts, and she follows them with great interest. But if it's the same sort of horrible thing, um, she you know she hides her face under her fan and looks looks really stricken, and even he can't really permit himself to take the next step, which is that she's sort of dissembling or or putting on a show, but rather he takes that as a sign that she's just like a typical woman that, you know, isn't that just like a woman, you know, that they, um, you know, that they can be so contradictory like that. Now, uh, not only is the case of Lizzie Borden inspired books, plays, poems, an opera, and even a ballet, but numerous mock trials. Now, you yourself participated in one at law school and even portrayed a central figure. Uh, Yes, I participated in a um, mock trial of uh, Lizzie Borden at Stanford Law School um, in the late 90s, uh, and then it was presided over by uh, the Chief Justice at the time, William Rehnquist and uh, the Associate Justice uh, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, and I can tell you, they did not want to exclude the evidence. <laughs> but again, it did. It, they had to. They were. It's they mock. Were, were, it's mock. So you really, the only thing that was um, uh, real, if you will, uh, that could go any way, you had like a jury of were they students or professors. So there was a, you know, audience that then voted uh, at the end of it. Right. The audience had fans, which they could use to to indicate whether whether they thought she was guilty or 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 not. And and she was acquitted. There you go. She was acquitted again. Now, you played Bridget or did you play? No, no, no. I played Emma, the sister who knows too much. Played Emma. Um, All right. And I, I think it's I, I think to to re- refer to me as an actress based on that is a is a bit of a stretch. Wait, 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 wait. Don't be so harsh. Let's let my audience decide. Let's go to the YouTube video of the mock trial and listen for ourselves. Now, Miss Emma, I want to talk to you about your sister's wardrobe. Um, are you familiar with her dresses? I know them as well as I know my own. Uh, well, I, in particular, I want to talk to you about this Bedford cord dress. Do you know which one I'm referring to? I do. It was a blue cotton Bedford cord, very light blue ground, uh, with a darker figure about an inch long and I think about three quarters of an inch wide. Uh, she'd had it made the first week in May, and we had the house painted right after that, and Lizzie got paint on the dress. I should say on the front uh, and on one side toward the bottom and, and then some on the wrong side of the skirt. And did you have an occasion on Saturday, the Saturday of the search, to see that Bedford cord dress? Yes, I saw it hanging in the closet over the entry. I went in to hang up the dress that I'd been wearing during the day and search around for a nail, and, and I saw this dress. I said to Lizzie, you haven't destroyed that old dress yet? Why don't you? It was very dirty, very much soiled and badly faded. And when did you next see the Bedford cord dress? Sunday morning, I think about nine o'clock. I was washing dishes and I heard my sister's voice and I turned around and saw she was standing at the foot of the stove, uh, the dress hanging on her arm. 
Uh, and she says, I think I shall burn this old dress up. And I said, why don't you? Or you'd better. Or something like that, meaning do it. And, and uh, what was the condition of the doors and the windows uh, at that time? Oh, they were all wide open, uh, screens in and blinds open. And were the police all about at that time? They were all about the yard. Thank you, thank you. Now, I want to ask you one other, just one other series of questions, and that is about this testimony from the matron of the Fall River Jail. Uh, have you heard that she has said there was a quarrel between you and your sister? Yes, ma'am, I heard that story. And when you visited her, when you visited your sister at the jail, did you have any conversation in which she said, Emma, you have given me away, haven't you? I did not. And did you say in reply, no, Lizzie, I haven't. And then did she say, you have and I will let you see I won't give in, or words to that effect? There was no such conversation. Nothing like that happened? Nothing. Was there ever any trouble or discord in the matron's room at the jail while the matron was present? There was not. Mrs. Reagan has told a falsehood. So let's talk a little bit about, we've earlier uh, mentioned a couple of the kind of funny uh, stories about the press at the time, but some of the press went really overboard. Uh, we, we talked today about fake news. Tell us about the story that was circulating that uh, Lizzie Borden was pregnant. Uh, there was a journalist named Mr. Tricky, <laughs> who actually had a good reputation before then, um, who uh, got a tip basically from an unscrupulous private detective who was sort of helping the Fall River police, but, you know, was also, uh, he was a, um, in, in England, they call him a chancer, I think, you know, he, he's always sort of skirting the, the law. And they had had a dispute about an earlier case. Um, and McHenry, I guess, wanted to wanted to get even with Tricky. And so he told her this, uh, he told him this story about um, Lizzie Borden's supposed pregnancy. And, and really what, what's missing from the case and, and why I think people struggle with their, uh, to, to reproduce it faithfully when they do movie versions or TV versions or reenactments um, is that, you know, there isn't a romance in it. Um, and there isn't a properly um, what you'd call feminine motive, right? The idea that somebody would kill because of this sort of simmering tension and ultimately for financial independence is not something that it just doesn't seem like a, a woman's motive uh, to many people. And so um, it would be much neater if there was if there was some, um, you know, illicit love affair. And so um McHenry spins the story to him um, about uh, Lizzie Borden being um, in danger of being thrown out of the house because of a pregnancy. And in fact, the, the father would, was named as her uncle, John Morse. Um, and then there are all sorts of stories of these, of, you know, fake witnesses to this terrible argument, you know, the, uh, 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 about, um, about Andrew's threats. And also, even um, the idea that there was a that there was some kind of hooded figure in the upstairs window, um, and that there were witnesses to that as well. Um, anyway, it, it turns out it gets published in the the uh, Boston Globe in October, um, and 
uh, the murders were in August, as you know. And, uh, but, you know, it just turns out to be a complete, uh, a complete fraud. Um, And the uh, Boston Globe is forced to apologize to Lizzie Borden. And, you know, I would say that they're probably, you know, more sympathetic after that. Uh, Well, uh, Mr. Mr. Tricky ends up, ends up dead. As I get, the there's so much there's so much conspiracy out there. I mean, that's a great one. We've got, you know, the illegitimate son, like like mm-hmm. Charles is supposed to have an illegitimate son somewhere, King Charles. So it's it's that's some of that's covered here. Some of it's covered other places. As we wrap up this wonderful discussion, I want you to put all your stuff out there. As I say, the book is called The Trial of Lizzie Borden, A True Story. <laughs> well, you can Google me, um, but I'm my website is uh, www.carawrobertson.com. So all one word. Great. Uh, and, you- and I'm always happy to, to hear from people who, who um, were kind enough to read the book or who have any questions. Well, again, you've um, done you've done a couple. I think a twenty twenty or a, one of those uh, datelines or something that a, a while back, which was was really well done. Uh, it's your your part of it, of course, was uh, was integral, but the whole thing was done uh, very well. Some of these things that that just you know too much verbiage or too much stock footage or too much music, but it it's a good piece. So you can again you can find that on Google. And uh, you said you're working on a book now, so we'll talk about that another time. And um, um, I just want to thank you again. It's 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 been a pleasure. I'm glad we finally got to match up here with COVID and everything else going on that we're able to get this down. And um, again, I wish you well. Well, thank you, Jim. It's it's been a real treat to um, to talk with you about the the case and the trial and the book. Oh, no, no, no. The treat was mine. Thank you so much. And there you go, fans. Uh, Another episode of Murder Most Foul in the Can. Uh, I hope you agree that it's a little different take than you used to on Lizzie Borden, but entertaining and informative. So there's a lot more in the book. Uh, I would pick it up if I were you. In the meantime, uh, please tell your friends about Murder Most Foul, and they can uh, listen to us on all the popular platforms. And you can also link to all the episodes and a little information about moi on the show's website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And there, there's a link to email. So please don't be shy. Just drop me a quick email. Let me know um, if you enjoy listening to the program, uh, what kinds, what types of murders or uh, uh, guests you'd like to hear me bring on. And I'd be happy to take suggestions. In the meantime, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. (laughs) 